this guy. Grace and peace to you guys. It's always a pleasure to be preaching God's Word to you this evening. And so, as if you've been following with me, we've been going slowly um, through the book of Jude, and so that's what we're going to be doing this evening. Bless you. And so, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, how about we turn to the small letter of the book of Jude, second to last book in the Bible, letter of Jude, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 10 this evening. Jude, verses 9 to 10. And for any note-takers out there, if you like taking notes, the title of the sermon this evening, guys, is going to be, Not Today, Satan. Not Today, Satan. And once you find your places in your Bibles, how would we all stand together um, as we read the Word of God in reverence, just like they did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah? And although I'm, although I'm going to be preaching through verses 9 to 10 today, I'm going to start back in verse 1, just because it has been a quick minute since I last preached Jude, only preach every other two months, and so just to see where we've been so far, and also just to get the context to what we're going to be looking at today, I'm going to be starting in verse 1 as well. So it looks like everyone is there. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this evening, and so we shall begin. This is what God's Word says to us this evening, church, starting in verse 1 of the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved and God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in, unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams to follow the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is what the word of God tells us this evening, church. Let's go before him one more time in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening that you have given us, God. We thank you, Lord, for this day that you have blessed us with, Lord. I just pray that, Father, as we just approach your word this evening, God, that, Lord, whatever we are going through, Father, as a church, Father, whatever we have gone through this past week, Father, whatever, God, you are um, 
whatever the trials we may be going through, Lord, I just pray that, Father, as we just approach your word, Father, that God, first and foremost, it is your word going to your people, and that, God, your word will just sanctify your, sanctify each and every person here and also anyone who listens to this, Father. It will just shape them more into the image of your son, Jesus, Father, whether that means through correction, Father, whether that means through encouragement, Lord. Ultimately, Lord, help us not to be, just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of your word, so that, God, we are made more into the image of your son, Jesus. And I just pray pray that for myself, Lord. God, I can't do this without you, Lord. And so, God, just set me aside. I just pray that I will not mess up your word in any way. But, Lord, just preach your word, and that, God, will be your word going to your people. I'm just your mouthpiece, Lord. And so, God, use me mightily, Lord, just to share what you have to say to your people this evening, Lord. And so, God, we thank you again. All that you have done through us through your son, Jesus, the fact that we're even able to meet here, Lord, is a blessing. And, God, we just lift up all these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe see the church. Humanism was not invented by a man, but by a snake who suggested that the quest for autonomy might be a good idea. This statement that I just said, once said by the late theologian R.C. Sproul, some of you have heard of him, it captures the tragic reality that we all experience daily. The actuality of the human condition is not that we are inherently good, despite what some people may say. No, instead, it is the complete opposite. Because in reality, humanity is sinful. We are sinful. And not only do we experience sin from others daily, but we instigate sin towards others too. And it is sin which is rooted in our hearts spiritually from the moment we are brought into this world that produces all the evil that we witness in this world around us. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Because from the moment the serpent, that is Satan, right, tempted Adam and Eve, that is our first human parents, in the Garden of Eden, sin and death has affected everything within God's good creation. From the moment they first rebelled against God by eating of that fruit, because they desired to be like God themselves, It has caused humanity to be alienated in various ways, socially from one another, and also with creation as well. But yet, the most tragic reality is not that sin and death entered creation. Don't get me wrong, that's a heavy reality and it sucks, right? But it's not the most devastating one. Because the greatest tragedy from humanity's fall in Genesis chapter 3 is that that was the day when man and woman rebelled against God, their creator, leading them to be therefore expelled from the garden, from God's presence. Humanity, because of sin, is alienated before God, and the inevitable result is death forevermore. That's why we go through all the various trials in life, loved ones, why we at times struggle with sin, and why evil still exists in this world. We live in times where people seem that whatever seems right in your own eyes, go ahead and do that. Instead of submitting to the authority of our good God in heaven, who is the standard of truth and has life in himself, humanity rebels against him by living as if they are God, right? And as a result, the general consensus among people today is that they are their own arbiters of truth. Because people believe that they are autonomous, that is, we are a law as unto ourselves, and therefore we can do whatever we want, right? Because if they really believe it in their heart, It is therefore true to them. It's my truth, right? Don't tell me what's wrong. I know it is. And if it is true to them, then it is right for them to do it. That's how people live today in our culture. 
And we can see this in, in, in an example of the continual progression of the sexual revolution. Instead of rightly finding one's identity in God as an image bearer of him, who he has made both male and female, calling it good, people rebel against this. They rebel against this authority by usurping his rule as the creator to define what gender they prefer. Instead of submitting to God's good plan for marriage between one man and woman, which is just a picture of the gospel of God loving his people, people distort this image for an image to reflect their own twisted desires. And because of this, people live um, as if they have the authority to marry whoever they want, right? If they marry at that matter, they live as if they can be with whoever they want to do whatever they want with their body, and to ultimately live life however they want. Again, Paul sums up sin in this way in Romans 1.25, that they exchanged people, general humanity, right? They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Humanity has exchanged the truth of being truly human. That is that we were made to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. Although humanity throughout history chases after this illusion called autonomy, wanting to become like God, thinking that they are the answer to everything, we still live in a world full of those great sins to remind us that we are not. We live in times where wars are running rampant, times where people die because they don't have the daily necessities like food, water, medicine, times where the church of Christ and parts in the world looks more like the world than it looks like God, right? Ultimately, we live in a time where people do not fear God anymore. And the tragedy behind this dystopian reality is that one day, the slave master of sin that humanity serves will eventually kill them and ultimately lead them to be eternally separated from God in hell forevermore. And now that quest for autonomy doesn't seem like a pretty good idea anymore, does it? But in light of all that, loved ones, likewise, as we approach this letter of Jude again tonight, we're going to see that Jude was dealing with a similar situation in his day. Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus and the full brother of James, the just, he writes this letter to a collection of predominantly Jewish churches in Palestine in the middle of the first century AD. And he does so because you have these false teachers who evidently rose amongst these, congreg- these Jewish congregations. They began to promote false teaching that not only perverted God's grace for licentious living, right, but they were denying the sovereign lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude illustrates this situation succinctly for us in verses 3 to 4 in his letter. This is what he says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For again, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so it's these false teachers who have apostatized, they have left the faith that they once professed, right, in Jesus because of their unbelief, their rebellion, and ultimately their immorality. But the danger was is that this was leading to the possible danger of these faithful churches to fall into such unbelief, rebellion, and immorality too. And similar to humans throughout history, and especially in our culture today, these false teachers were rejecting ultimately God's authority and favor for their own autonomous living. But yet, 
Jude is going to warn his readers, as well as us tonight, loved ones, that about the danger of living in such error. And this leads us to the main point of these two verses here tonight. The main point of Jude 9 to 10 this evening, beloved, is this, and it's simple. Submit yourselves to God's, God's authority. Submit yourselves to God's authority. But why? Why do we need to submit ourselves to God's authority? And if an unbeliever is listening to this, like, I don't even believe in God. What's the big deal, John? Well, Jude is going to give us two reasons why Christians and just people in general are to submit themselves to God's authority. And so two reasons, right? Reason number one, God alone has the authority to make judgments eternally. God alone has the authority to make judgments eternally. That's the first reason. Reason number two is that those who rebel against God's authority will be judged eternally. Those who rebel against God's authority will be judged eternally. And we will begin to see just how necessary it is to submit to God's authority, who is good, right? By looking at Jude's first reason for doing so in her text. And so, again, the first reason, God alone has the authority to make judgments eternally. And so if you may turn your attention to your Bibles, loved ones, and what Jude says in verse 9, this is what he says there. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to renounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And so now we're in the part of Jude's letter, which is called the body of the letter, right? The center point of these ancient letters in the first century. As we saw last time, Jude is beginning to describe the false teachers um, and allude to ultimately God's judgment because of their rebellion. And, and, and he's doing so by implementing a very common Jewish interpretation of scripture technique called a midrash. And what a midrash was, if you were here last time, is that this provides a powerful way for Jew to allude to prophecies, what was said in the past in God's word, to see how these things were being fulfilled today. And so in Jude 5 to 8, what Jude does there is that he gives three examples of apostasy and how they were judged, right, in the past. The first example was that unfaithful wilderness um, generation of Israel, the fallen angels in Genesis chapter 6, and those cities in Sodom and Gomorrah. These examples ultimately pointed to the fulfillment of the false teachers in Jude's day on how they apostatized the faith and also how one day they will inevitably face God's judgment in the end. And therefore, as we go through the body of the letter, Jude's going to do this five times. There's five sections throughout 5 to 19, and he's carefully presenting these false teachers that have arisen within the church to either, hey, look at these Old Testament examples. Hey, you remember that Jewish tradition, that story that our grandfathers used to tell us? Remember those and know that the false teachers now are those being fulfilled. And so with that in mind, loved ones, we're on the second example tonight. We're on the second description of Jew describing who these false teachers are. And so if, we look, so if you may look at the beginning of our passage tonight, beloved, it begins with this phrase, and we're going to stop just with this phrase at the moment and look at it. But when the archangel Michael, just, just look at that for a moment, all right? So we look at that, and the initial big question you might be asking yourself is like, well, who is Michael the archangel? I bet many of us have probably heard of him before, but who exactly is he, right? I know he's an angel, that's what, the, that's what verse 9 says, but who is Michael? Well, there's not a lot of scriptural data on Michael. As a matter of fact, besides Jude 9, there's only, he's only mentioned a few times in the book of Daniel 
and one from Revelation. That's it. And so all of like, oh man, that's not a lot of information in mind. Yet we can still build, a, we can still get a good idea within these verses themselves on just how important Michael plays a role in God's overall redemptive plan of history. And so let's, let's talk about Michael for a little bit. Let's look at who Michael is based on what scripture presents him to be. Let's begin with Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. That's the verse passage. And this is what it says there. It says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now, very interesting passage, right? Well, first, when Daniel is having this vision in chapter 10, considering Israel in the last days, that's the context behind here, right? An angel meets him, but it's not Michael, it's a different angel. And we know that because this angel says to Daniel that he would have arrived earlier to Daniel, right? But yet, you got this person called the Prince of Persia that held him up for 21 days. And who is the Prince of Persia, right? Well, it's not a, it's not a character in an old movie or in an old video game. Not that Prince of Persia, right? No. Look at the text closely. This has to be a supernatural being because no human can go toe-to-toe with an angel. It's just humanly impossible. So this guy is an angel of some sort, a supernatural being. But yet, since he's going against one of God's messengers, this, this can't be a good angel. It has to be someone evil for which good angel of God will go against his own purposes. And so with this looking at this in mind, it makes best sense that this prince of Persia, it has to be a demon who had great spiritual influence over the physical nation of Persia in this time. And if that may seem odd to you at first, the Bible has a lot to say just about the unseen spiritual forces, which not only influences the principalities, but also the world nations, the world powers in this world around us, right? There's more to the physical dimension that we see. There's a spiritual aspect that's going around, going around us all the time, but we just can't see it. But it does exist, especially because Scripture does talk about it. For example, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6.12 to the Ephesian church that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the physical aspect of life, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right? There's that spiritual warfare that goes on. Paul again says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, to the Corinthian church, for though we walk in the flesh, and that's just an expression to walking in the physical manner of this life, we're not waging war according to this flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Like when we preach the gospel, there's a spiritual aspect going beyond than just having a physical conversation with an individual. But yet with that in mind, the detail we need to pull from Daniel 10 to 13 is that there seems to be this hierarchy of angels and demons, right? And this is going to give us something very important about Michael. Because where the angel talking to Daniel could not prevail against this demon prince of Persia alone, he needed the help of someone else. And this is where Micah, uh, or not Micah, Michael comes to give him some extra muscle, right? And notice that what this angel calls Michael. What does he call him? One of the chief princes. But what does that refer to, right? Well, in Jewish tradition, there were a total of seven chief princes who were later, later called archangels. These are synonymous terms um, who were mighty angels in God's army. And, and two of them were actually mentioned in the Bible. Michael and Gabriel, right? And so based on Daniel 10.13, we see that Michael was one of the, a more powerful angel within God's angelic host. But moreover, what does these other passages that mentions Michael, what do they say about him? 
Well, there's another reference. In Daniel 12, um, at the first part of verse 1, it says that at that time shall arise Michael. There he is again. The great prince who has charge of her people. And so look at that description. This description of Michael being in charge of Daniel's people. And if we know Daniel, he's of Jewish descent. He's of the Jewish people. And so Michael is in charge of Daniel's people, which means that he's really a guardian angel of the nation of Israel, which again is further fleshed out in Jewish tradition as well. So, but yet, there's one more passage, though, that shows not just that Michael, I don't know why I'm calling him Micah, he possesses you know, great authority as an archangel and also being the guardian angel over Israel, but there's something interesting when we look at the third and final passage about Michael. And it's what John says in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 8. This is what the Apostle John says. He says, Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon, his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there is no longer any place for them in heaven. And so we look at the scene, right? In Revelation, this end-time battle between the dragon which contextually is Satan with his fallen angels. And he got Micah with his angels. And they duke it out and they do battle with one another. But yet Michael will defeat him. And what this illustrates is that not only how powerful he is as an archangel, but just the authority that God has granted um, him to defeat Satan. And so with all this biblical data in mind, it's not a lot, right? But it's still valuable information that, you know, Michael is a powerful angel because he's an archangel. He's the one who leads God's angelic host of armies, and also he is the guardian angel of God's people. This is going to become very important to help us understand why Jude even mentions Michael in the first place in verse 9. But before we can, but before we can get there, there's just one more thing we need to be aware of at the beginning of verse 9 in our text, and it has to do with the word but, which appears in the ESV. Here, it is functioning as a connecting word that is telling us to look back to the previous verse. Look back to verse 8. What was Jude saying there? But not only that, but it's also expressing a contrast, a contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. And so with that in mind, who is Jude contrasting Michael to then? Well, let's look at Jude 8 really quick. Look at your Bibles where it says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And if you may recall, Jude never, recall, never refers to these false teachers by name because he does not consider them worthy to be called by names. Like, I'm not going to mention these guys by name. Instead, just refer to them as those people. These people. Yeah, these, those people. Yeah, we're not going to call them by name. It's those people, all right? And based on the threefold Old Testament examples of the apostates, as we saw in verses 5 to 7, these false teachers, those people, we're imitating these Old Testament examples in their apostasy. Therefore, they were defiling their flesh by giving into some sort of sexual sin. And instead of submitting to the authority of our Master and Lord Jesus Christ, they reject him in favor of their own prophetic dreams. Hey, we know what we're talking about. We got dreams, guys. We're dreamers. We, we have all the answers. That's what they were thinking. And in the process of all this, they believed. Oh, dang, I lost my spot. In the process of all this, sorry about that, guys, they were blaspheming the glorious ones, holy angels, right? And the idea of blasphemy, right, it's not, it's, it, it captures more of the idea of slander, dishonoring shame, speaking insults of someone. And so this is what these false teachers were doing. And that's such a big deal in this passage because 
Angels were believed in Jewish tradition, again, to be the guardians of God's created order, representing his authority to a sense, right? And also were the mediators of his word to his people. So to slander, in a sense, the, their authority, the angels' authority, was in a sense to rebel against God's authority, to ultimately rebel against him. And so the comparison that Judah's making is between these false teachers and Michael, where the false teachers were rebelling against God's authority, Michael, as we're going to see, he is submitting himself to God's authority. And Judah's going to prove this by referring to a specific incident that occurs between Michael and Satan. And so look again at your Bibles, beloved, in verse 9, where he says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. So we're going to stop there and talk about these next few phrases. Look at the word when. It appears in the ESV. This is really a marker of time, which refers to a specific event, all right? And this event, as it says in verse 9, is Michael contending with the devil, and they're fighting about Moses' body. And so in light of that, right, I got a question to ask all you. Where in Scripture do you recall this event taking place? Do you recall an event in the Bible that Michael was fighting with the devil about Moses' body? If you can't think of one, it's okay, because it doesn't happen in the Bible, right? But if that's the case, then where is Jude getting this from? Where is this story coming from? Well, it's virtually agreed by scholars that Jude is alluding to an ancient Jewish work called the Assumption of Moses. And this is not scripture. This is just a, an ancient Jewish literary work which the, which the Jewish people passed down. And in this book, this is where we see this scene take place between Michael, the defender of Israel, disputing with Satan, the accuser of God's people. And so within this book, the story goes something like this. After God shows Moses the promised land at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he dies and is then buried in an unknown location. We, we know that much at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And so with Moses dying and he's about to be buried, Michael the archangel then is entrusted to bury Moses, who is called the friend of God, right? But yet, as Satan does best, prowling around like a lion, Satan confronts Michael. And what does he confront Michael about? He accuses Moses of being unworthy of, of having a burial. And that was a big thing in ancient times, you know, to have an honorable burial, because if not, it would really shame the individual. So it was, this is a big deal. And, but why does Satan even bring that up in the first place? Like, why, why doesn't Moses have a good burial? Well, Satan brings up an incident early in Moses' life, and that's when he, when he murdered the Egyptian who was beating one of his Hebrew brothers early in the book of Exodus, right, while he was still in Egypt. It's this incident that Satan wants to claim the body of Moses and then destroy it, right? He doesn't deserve an honorable burial. What are you doing, Michael? And since Satan is the prince of this fallen world, he believes that he has the right to do this. And so it's this story, loved ones, that Jude has in mind here in verse 9. And so that's why he says that Michael was contending with the devil and was disputing about the body of Moses. And the interesting thing about this, this incident is that this verb for contending in the Greek, it just indicates this dispute between Satan and Michael. It was a, it was a back and forth argument. It was going back and forth, back and forth. And if you're like me, if you ever grew up with younger siblings, you kind of have an idea what, what I'm talking about, right? Like you ever fight with a younger sibling and something really dumb, and then this goes back and forth, and at the end, no one wins, you usually get in trouble. A back and forth argument, right? It's horrible. This is kind of what we're seeing here in verse 9. It's an argument going back and forth, not really going anywhere, until 
It climaxes when Jude says about Michael at the, at the end of verse 9. And this is really interesting. Look what he says what Michael does. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And it's vital that we understand why did, why, why did it Michael presume a, to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan? Well, Beginning with the clause, he did not presume to pronounce, it really expresses a judicial idea. Think of a courtroom scene, right? Where someone may inflict punishment or, or impose or maybe pronounce a judgment, right? Like a judge pronouncing judgment upon someone who is guilty of a verdict. That's what this phrase is capturing here. And Jude clarifies what type of judgment, if it's good or bad, with a blasphemous judgment. This, this is a negative connotation, right? And this word for blasphemy in the Greek, it's better, again, understood to be slander, right? An accusation of judgment. This is what Michael didn't dare to do. He didn't dare to pronounce a judgment of slander upon the devil. And this is significant because Michael is not concerned about merely hurting the devil's feelings by damaging his reputation with an accusation. No, that's not the point here. Although Satan was accusing Moses of being a murderer, who himself, he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, what a hypocrite, Michael refuses to depend upon his own authority. Although Michael is an archangel, the leader of God's angel army, and the protector of God's people, he entrusts all judgment upon the one who alone has the authority to judge, and that's God. And now we begin to see this contrast between what the false teachers did in the rebellion and Michael's submission towards God's authority. Again, where these false teachers are presuming to have this authority to make judgment about God's angels, Michael does not about Satan. Where these false teachers abandoned their own position as created beings by attempting to usurp God's authority to make an eternal judgment about his angelic beings, Michael refuses to do so about Satan. Instead, he says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And this word for rebuke In the Greek, it's expressing this idea of of a curse. Michael's really pronouncing a curse of judgment upon Satan. But remember, it's not based on his own authority because whose name is he referring to? The Lord's, right? And so in other words, because Michael says this, ultimately, he is saying that no, Satan, God has chosen Moses. He is his child and he will keep him. You have no authority over him, Satan. And this is how actually the, the, the story ends in the Assumption of Moses with Satan withdrawing from Michael's presence like a worm because he realizes that not only will God show Moses honor, but at the end, he's going to condemn Satan for his slanderous comments against Moses. But even in light of that, there's another incident in the same text that Jude is also alluding to. And we can know this because when Michael says, the Lord rebuke you, that's actually a direct quotation to an Old Testament book in the book of Zechariah particularly in verse or in chapter 3, verse 2. And so if we read this passage, it's not Michael saying this. It's actually God saying this to Satan. So this is what Zechariah 3, 2 says. God says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And when we think about the context of Zechariah 3, which takes place in post-exilic times, after the nation of Israel came out of exile in Babylon, 
You got this guy, the prophet Zechariah. He sees a vision from God, and he sees a vision regarding Joshua, who was the high priest in this point in Israel's history. And within this chapter, he's actually a symbol, not only for him as the high priest, but also for the Jewish people in general. But yeah, it's not only Joshua that he sees, but he also sees the angel of the Lord in the temple. But at the right hand of Joshua is the devil, doing what he does best, ready to accuse Joshua. But why does he accuse him? Well, he's like, hey, Josh, you got some dirty clothes. You got some dirty garments, man. But yet, the symbol here is that it represents cultic moral impurity. He's a sinner. He's a sinner. And that's a big deal because how could a sinner represent God's people as the mediator of God's people to God, right? If he's a sinner, then how can he represent God's people? He's too dirty. He's not worthy enough. But the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. And with the Lord rebuking Satan, he withdraws again like a worm. And also in this passage, he pronounces Joshua's guilt to be removed. He's forgiven, and therefore he is kept by the Lord himself. It's this scene, this courtroom scene in Zechariah 3, that Judas depicted between Michael and Satan. Again, Michael did not dare to risk depending upon his own authority For he keeps his proper place as a created being by appealing to the authoritative judgment of God judging evil. In this case, Satan's evil. And so Jude's point in verse 9 is not merely that Michael refused to bring a slanderous accusation before Satan. No, he just leaves all judgment to God because only he alone has the authority to judge evil. And think about this. Even if Michael did presume to slander the devil by judging his deeds, although he is a slanderer, It would be meaningless. Why? Because it's only the Lord's judgment of evil that truly stands because he alone, again, has the authority to do so as the creator of all things. And so in light of all that, loved ones, how are we supposed to live in light of this reality, right? What's the point? How does this matter to us, John? Well, simply and ultimately, guys, we must never give in to the lie of self-autonomy. We must never give in to the lie of believing that we don't need God. Whether it is as blatant as denying his existence altogether or as subtle as, oh, I can, I can deal by my own strength. I don't need God. I got this. You know, I don't need to pray. I don't need my brothers. I don't, I don't need to read scripture. I can do it by my own. No. We must never give in to Satan's lie of being a law to ourselves that we can do things on our own power. And perhaps like, well, John, I don't really make that claim verbally, you know, so I'm good. But sometimes we do behave this way, don't we? Because let me ask you guys this question. How many of us love the Lord of God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? The only person raising their hand would be Jesus, because he is God, right? And, and, that, and because we all fall short in sin. I know I do, and I, and, I, and, I need, and I repent, and I need to lean on Christ daily, as do all of us. Although our souls have been redeemed because we believe by faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our flesh still gets the best of us. We still give into temptation at times. We still sin. And therefore, we still rebel in moments against the Lord's authority. Whether, you know, if it's a teenager giving their parents a hard time because they just love their sin more than God. Maybe it's a parent in in certain situations abusing their God-given authority as parents toward their children because they forget who they ultimately are held accountable to. Maybe it's an employee working lazily because, eh, no one will find out. Maybe a student disrespecting their teacher because of all the homework they give. Or just church members gossiping behind other church members' backs due to silly preferences. In whatever, in whatever way, shape, or form, we still sin and still therefore rebel against his authority over our lives. We're slaves to Jesus. we got to live for him. And when we sin, we don't submit to his authority. 
And we can believe that we are in control in these moments, right? At least until conviction hits later, right? Like, oh, dang, I messed up. But the point, loved ones, is that we're not in control, especially in making moral judgments about someone else. God's judgment will stand. And it's not to say that we can never make judgments, right? We're supposed to be discerning, but the point that Jude is making here is that, no, the, the eternal judgments of whether that person is condemned in hell or forgiven in Jesus, only God can do that alone, right? And this point becomes all the more clear when we consider just how does this passage connect to Jesus? All Scripture speaks about him. How does this passage connect to Jesus? Well, as born-again believers, you do not overcome the devil. We cannot overcome the devil, temptation, sin, and death by our own might. I don't care how hard he tried. We're still going to die at the end because the only way we can ever overcome Satan, his false accusations, sin, temptation, death, is by not taking it into our own hands. Like, I got this. No. Instead, we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb of God alone. It's only by Jesus that we overcome sin and death. As the Apostle John writes beautifully in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 to 11, hear what he says. He says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even until death. Ultimately, it's only by the blood of Jesus' cross that, that we have the power to overcome Satan. It is when we entrust ourselves to Jesus who crushed the head of the serpent that by his grace that we're able to crush him under our feet as well. And even if worst case scenario, which is not a worst case, but still kind of sucks, if we die as a martyr, right, for Christ, the worst is we go into the, into the immediate presence of our Lord in, Lord in heaven. What's so bad with that? And not only that, but we rise again from the grave just as he did. Not because of what we have done, but what Christ has done in himself. And so, brothers and sisters, submit yourselves to God's authority alone. Not only does he alone have the authority to judge evil rightly, but he will do so perfectly according to his perfect will, because he is in control. We are not, whether we think so or not. And the more we allow this reality to permeate our soul, to meditate upon this, we're going to be able to function more and more daily on how we ought, how we were originally created, by fearing God our loving Father in heaven, and living for him as our awesome creator and all that we do, brothers and sisters, all that we do. And all that we do is because of his grace, right? It's sufficient for us daily. It's not by our might or strength, but his Holy Spirit that allows us to live for him. And so let's live for him by submitting ourselves to him, as Michael, Michael the archangel rightfully did, right? And if he is an archangel, one of the most powerful angels in God's angelic army, if he understood this, then you bet that it's so important that we understand this point as well, loved ones. Especially because if we choose not to submit ourselves to God's authority, but, you know, I'm going to do my own thing instead, God, rebel against him, Jude warns us of the consequence of such an action. And this leads to Jude's second and final reason in our text this evening. And it's this again, loved ones. Those who rebel against God's authority will be judged eternally. Those who rebel against God's authority will be judged eternally. And so look at your Bibles, beloved, on what Jude says in verse 10. He says this, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
where Jude alludes, again, to Zechariah 3, and he got, bless you, the assumption of Moses to illustrate Michael's submission to the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. He then comments, as he does throughout his body in this letter, he makes a comment in verse 10 on the false teachers rebelling against God, his authority. And this is, again, evident when Jude uses another conjunction, the same one, but again to contrast Michael and these false teachers. And what does he have to say about these people? What were they doing? Well, again, they were blaspheming. They were slandering all that they did not understand. And the context of Jude makes it clear that these false teachers, they just did not understand their place as creatures when they tried to judge angels in the ultimate sense of what only God can do as the creator. As a result, they failed to truly grasp God's authority and thus were slandering and ultimately rebelling against him based on what they were doing to his angels, right? And to make this point even more clear, I want to jump to a similar parallel passage that's parallel in content to Jude 9 to 10. And it's what 2 Peter says in the second chapter of his letter in verses 10 to 12. This is what he says here, loved ones. Those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though great, greater and mightier in power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Now, I am not sure if I, I don't recall if I ever mentioned this so far, but the letter of Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2, they're very closely related to the point that virtually all scholars believe that Peter is actually using the content in Jude for 2 Peter 2. But this does not mean that they were talking about the exact same audience to the same group of false teachers. What it does indicate is that they were both going through a similar situation of false teachers infiltrating faithful churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is important because knowing how Peter uses Jude's words will help us understand what Jude meant when he wrote his own words, right? And so Peter says that the false teachers he was dealing with, they were indulging in sexual passions while despising God's authority. And as a result, notice what Peter says again in verse 10. Bold and woeful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, the greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And so listening to that, or looking at your Bibles, do you see how it's, it's very identical, very similar in content to what we just saw in, ver- in Jude verse 9, right? As the false teachers in Peter's situation were bold and even willful to slander angels without hesitation, Jude was dealing with false teachers who were doing the same, right? And as Peter describes how angels greater in might and power, did not do this to the false teachers themselves before God? Jude gives a specific example about how Michael the archangel doesn't even dare to do this. Therefore, it is clear that the false teachers, what they fail to understand in Jude 10 is that God alone has the authority to judge eternally. Instead, they blatantly choose to do so themselves in the process of denying Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And this then alludes to what Jude is going to immediately say about them next in verse 10. And so look at the end of verse 10, beloved, where Jude says this. He says, They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
And so this destruction here of the false teachers, it's referring to God's final judgment of sending everyone who has rebelled against God into the lake of fire forever. But what is, but what is it that God is going to punish these false teachers for, right? We know it's sin, right? That's what condemns us to hell forever. But what were they doing specifically that got them this condemnation? Again, look at the end of verse 10 where Jude says, they are destroyed by all that they, like in reasoning animals, understand instinctively. And so these false teachers are destroyed by all that they do know. And this is interesting because where Jude says these people had no idea what they were doing when slandering angels, they missed the point, the spiritual reality that God has the authority to judge eternally. They missed that point, yet they were going to be destroyed by what they did know and what they were doing. And it is here where Jude clearly illustrates the moral corruption of these false teachers, right? They had a lot of a lot of doctrine wrong, but it's here that they were just morally corrupt people, very morally corrupt people that was dangerous for these other churches in Jude's day. And the hint that we get is when he compares them to unreasoning animals. But what does that phrase mean? Why is Jude comparing them to animals? Well, in the ancient world, the phrase, like unreasoning animals, that was a common way to describe how beasts um, acted and were like where an animal is characterized by what they do according to their animal instincts, such as God created them to mate and survive and live. Humans are characterized by me being made in God's image. And that is what sets us apart from the animal kingdom. Although animals are, cre- are creatures made by God and, and he calls them good, leaving us with the responsibility to care for them, they don't possess the same dignity that people do, Right? Because people are made in God's image. And not only that, but we can reason, we can think, unlike animals. Because, because let's be honest, I have never seen a dog stop and contemplate, like, wow, God's a Trinitarian God, it's awesome. You don't, see God's, you don't see dogs doing that, right? I have never seen an animal stop and read Aristotle's ethics, like, wow, that's a pretty cool thought. Or enjoy a movie, it's like, oh, I want to go see that again. Animals don't work that way. They don't live that way. God has created them to eat, sleep, you know, find a partner to mate, Roam this earth until they die, like all things. But humans, humans do have the capacity to reason because we were ultimately made that way for God. We were made to enjoy God and glorify him forever, to read his word, to think his thoughts after him, and to praise and live for him, and that all that we do will be done as an expression of worship to him. But yet, with these false teachers, Jude says they were not acting as humans, but like unreasoning animals. And he says that that is what they understood, what they were doing instinctively. Where these false teachers failed to prop- properly understand the spiritual things of this world, they knew what they were doing instinctively. And this word for instinct, it's an interesting one because it only appears three times in the entire New Testament. One of those occurrences is in 2 Peter 2.12. So look what, what Peter says here again in, in this parallel passage. He says, but these, like irrational animals, Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. And so based on the overall context, the one thing that these false teachers knew and were just doing instinctively second nature to them, almost like animals, were just giving into their sinful desires, their sexual desires, right? That's the reason why these people are going to be destroyed. Where Satan was condemned back in Jude 9, Due to Michael calling upon the Lord to judge him, the false teachers will be condemned because of their slander against spiritual things they misunderstood. 
And like Satan, who will be thrown into the eternal flames of the lake of fire due to his rebellion against God, these false teachers will be judged eternally for the rebellion against God and sin as well. And so as a result, loved ones, thinking about all these things about these false teachers, this ought to be a reminder to all of us of just the danger of sin, the reality of sin. Because these evil impulses, they did not only affect the heart of these false teachers or really bad, wicked men. No, that sin lies, as we all know, in the heart of all humanity. Describing the condition of the human heart, Jude's older brother James has something to say about this. He says in chapter 1 of his letter, in verses 14 to 15, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All people sin when we are first tempted by our own desire. Being lured and enticed by it, kind of like a fish being lured and enticed by the bait on a fishing hook, the person then conceives sin in their heart. And the moment that person gives into that sinful desire, that is when we have sin against God. And if we don't repent from that sin before God, then that will lead to the inevitable death because of it, death and hell forever. Because the wage of sin is eternal death. The person who sins shall die, Scripture says. And the truth is that all of humanity has fallen short of the glory of God because of their sinful rebellion against him. As a result, the judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ, will judge people according to their actions. And for the sinner, it's everlasting punishment and hell forever. It's not good news, guys. Yet there's still hope, and we must never forget this, loved ones. For the way to find freedom from sin is, of course, in Jesus. Consider what the Apostle Paul says about this awesome reality in Romans 8-1. It's kind of a long chunk of scripture, but very worthwhile for us to hear this. Paul says this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so, loved ones, if we, if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are no longer condemned. Don't believe in this, the lies that Satan may throw at us. We are not condemned because we have been set free in Jesus Christ. All of our sins forgiven because of the cross of Christ. Where no one could save themselves by being good, God sent his only begotten Son, who is good, Jesus, to live a perfect life and ultimately die on the cross for our sins. And since we have all believed in him in faith, our sins are judged upon the cross of Christ, and we receive his perfect righteousness that he earned on this earth. As a result, we have life in the Spirit because Jesus killed sin and death by dying in our place. Brothers and sisters, set your hearts and minds on the things of the Spirit, on the things that are above in heaven. Read his word to better know him. 
Pray to him to become better dependent upon him. Live life with other brothers and sisters to be held accountable, to be held accountable, to be more like him. Because if we choose to live by filling our heart with the things of the flesh, worldly things that are hostile to God, sin, then we can just count it that we just chosen death at that point. Because to choose sin is to rebel against God. And if you live your life living for your false idols of sin, whatever they may look like, you will be judged accordingly. And it doesn't matter if you say, well, I believe in Jesus, right? I just do my own thing in my life, right? No, no, no. Satan and demons, they believe that Christ is Lord, but they don't submit to him as Lord. And so do we live that way? We cannot, loved ones. And so again, live this day submitting to God's authority and not your own. Because only then we will experience this that joy, that peace and life that comes when we live for, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we have seen Jude this evening describe the rebellion of the false teachers against God. They have denied him by living according to their own authority. And as we will see next time, which has been alluded throughout the letter so far, Jude is going to begin prophetically pronouncing God's judgment upon these false teachers and how God will deal with them in the end. In the meantime, loved ones, again, submit yourselves to God's authority. Not only does he have the authority alone to judge eternally and, and he rules sovereignly over creation, but he will ultimately destroy those who choose to rebel against him. And so entrust yourselves to God. He can be trusted, for he is faithful. He keeps his promises. He is all-powerful. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is a loving God. He is holy. He is eternal forevermore. Although we will stumble and fall and fall short in sin, he is merciful to restore us if we return to him in repentance. He loves us. He loves his children. And although he rules all things, to be a child of the Most High God, we not only find true freedom at that point, but true meaning because we are living for the one that we were always meant to worship. And if there's anyone here who hasn't repented, repented of their sins or, or has placed their faith in Jesus, anyone listening to this, I just pray that you do so as soon as possible. Maybe even right now. That would be more ideal because we're not promised tomorrow. Because as I've been saying throughout our time together, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we will ultimately be judged accordingly for sin and hell forever. But yet, the good news is, if you believe in Jesus by faith alone, as the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, died and rose victoriously three days later from the grave, Scripture says, you will be saved. And you, don't, and you no longer have to be a slave, abused by your sins, the sinfulness of this world, or Satan's lies anymore. Because if you turn to Christ this day, he will give you life that is only available in him. And so, as for you, if you have not repented, if you have any questions about that, you may talk to me about the gospel or any other leaders. Um, but with that in mind, loved ones, let's go before him one more time in prayer.